Our scripture lesson today is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, please feel free to use one of the red Bibles in the pew in front of you. I'll give you just a minute to find that. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been preaching through the book of Romans for um, a long time, um, for, for more than a year, um, and we aren't that far from the end of it, but as we turn our attention to this portion of it, would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray that you would be near to us now as we hear from your word. You would be teaching us all to be more and more like Jesus Christ. You would be with all of us sinners as we wrestle to apply your word to our lives and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So love. Every day, multiple times a day, I look at my wife and I say, I love you. Sometimes it's because I'm like, wow, you look really beautiful right now, and sometimes it's to encourage her because life is presenting some challenge, and sometimes, although very, very rarely, it's maybe even a little bit exasperated, like, I love you. Um, and I say it to my kids, sometimes because they're doing something that delights me, and again, quite a bit more often because I'm feeling frustrated and I'm trying to remind myself, you know, I love you. And I say it to friends and to dear brothers and sisters in the church. Then I say it to parents and to relatives. And I hear songs I like on the radio. And I say, man, I love this song. I love this artist. Or television shows. And I love good food, especially meat. And I love, you know, podcasts. And, you know, I mean, that word, love, is a huge part of my daily vocabulary. And in a sense, of the world. We talk about love for our fellow human beings. We talk about love as the solution to the world's problems. We talk about love for ice cream. And Jesus, when he sums up the law, sums it up with love. When he is challenged with the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? His response is famously this from Matthew 22. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love sums up God's law, Jesus says. Because of how we use that word, I have to admit, I have always struggled with that verse a little bit. And the reason I have struggled with it is because I always just feel like, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that actually mean? Because love can mean all kinds of different things, and sometimes not even healthy things. I mean, my, you know, a child who really, really wants to just eat ice cream for dinner, right, will insist that, it's, that you're not letting them because you don't love them. 
talking to a young person who's making really bad choices in their life. They may well accuse you of being unloving when you're trying to, you know, to talk through the decisions that they're making. A parent, a cruel parent, can do horrible things to a child and then excuse it by saying, I'm doing this because I love you. So we don't just need the word love, although it is a good word. We need a sense of what that is supposed to look like and mean in our lives. And Paul, in this section of Romans 12, begins a discussion of love. This week and next week, he gives all these different commandments that in many ways fit together into a description of our call to love. And right up front in verse 9, he starts by saying, love must be sincere. That word for sincere can also be translated genuine. It means real and authentic. Paul isn't just saying, show love. He says, show true love. And it is that idea that then ties the rest of these verses together. Paul starts listing these different commands, these different parts of our lives, these things we should do, but they aren't just random good ideas. They're a list of things that help us understand what parts of our lives are meant to be transformed by that calling to love, the definition of what true love looks like. And so I'm going to suggest that as we sum up these commands this morning, they really boil down to three things. For Paul, love means prioritizing others, it means seeking good, and it means serving God. Prioritizing others, seeking good, and serving God. So let's just look at each of those in turn. First of all, Paul talks about love in terms of prioritizing other people making others a priority, a higher priority even than ourselves. And I think this is probably the most obvious thing when we think about love. It's love for other people. But there's a lot that we can learn from how Paul talks about that command. Start with verse 10, okay? Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. There's two commandments there that start to flesh out love. First, be devoted to one another in love. And I don't know if you realize this, but there are several different Greek words for love. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and when we're reading in English, we just see the word love, and it's actually a translation of some, several very different words. And I never do things like this, okay? So if you're a visitor, uh, <laughs> but um, let's talk for just a minute about those Greek words, Okay? Very briefly, here are the basic Greek words for love. There is phileo, which means love in a general sense, friendship or companionship or affection for somebody. There is eros, which um, we could call romantic love. It's where we get the word erotic. Um, there is storge, which means sort of dutiful love or the love that you owe somebody because of your relationship. Um, and there is agape, which is the word for kind of this deep, overwhelming heart love. And agape is actually a really rare word in ancient Greek, but is very common in the New Testament. So first of all, back in verse 9, when Paul says, let love be sincere, that's agape. He's talking about that, that deep heart love. And then in this verse that we just read, there's actually two different terms that he uses that fit together to, to give us that phrase, be devoted to one another in love. One of them is Philadelphia, which is not the city, but is that word phileo, and then Delph the, the word for sibling, then, it combined with it. So it's the love you would have for a family member. And then there is um, another word, which is 
philostorgos, which is a compound of phileo again, and storge, that word for dutiful love. And here's why I point that out to you for a minute, because what's really interesting is that in Paul's world, the reason that ancient Greek has all these different words for love is because they feel like each one belongs in a very specific setting. Right? There is this love that I owe to members of my family, and there's this love that I owe to people who, um, who I have this duty to, this love that I have for a spouse or child, this love, this deep kind of you know, love that I'm supposed to have from our heart. And the reason ancient Greek had all those words is so that we didn't confuse the different types of love. Does that make sense? What's remarkable about what Paul does just in these two verses is that, except for eros, for obvious reasons— He uses all of the Greek words for love to describe our relationship to each other as Christians. That the love that we should have for spouses and children and family members and the love we should have for members of our community and deep heart affection and dutiful kind of honoring and showing respect for people, that all of those things are all jumbled together as a part of what we're supposed to show to each other. And that only gets more striking when you keep going in verse 10, and Paul says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. The idea of honor, again in our world, can seem a little thin, but in Paul's world, um, it was a huge deal. If you've ever been in a society that's more honor-based, like the Middle East or Japan, kind of in our world today, you, you understand that there's a sense that my honor is what my life is all about. And to lose it is almost worse than dying, and to gain it is the thing that I'm living for. And Paul lives in a world like that, and what he says is, honor others above yourself. That that, that honor that you're, that most people are living to gain for themselves, lose it for others. Give it up to build other people's honor up. And then in verse 13, Paul gives a couple of specific commands that work out these calls to love each other and honor each other in all of these ways. First, he says, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. So first, we should share and care for those who are in need. In the Bible, there are two levels on which we are commanded to care for the poor. On the first level, we're just commanded to care for the poor, period. God has a heart and a special care for those who are powerless and oppressed and, you know, and have the least access to things in our society, and he calls us to show concern to them and to their cause in a general way. And then there's a second level of care that's especially addressed to fellow Christians, which is to say that we should seek to help anyone that is poor, but we have a responsibility to brothers and sisters in the church in a particular way that um, we're responsible for their well-being. That if any of them, right, are poor in Scripture, um, that's not just something that should call us to action, but actually a reflection that we've just failed to understand how the church is supposed to work. And that's because of the love and honor that Paul was just talking about. Part of the reason that I think Scripture focuses so much on this calling is because here is one of the surest ways to test your love, to see whether it's genuine, is to ask whether you show it when you aren't getting anything out of it in return. I think it's pretty easy for us when we hear these calls to love and honor um, to do that when, it's like, when we're thinking about our attractive, wealthy, well-connected neighbors, right? Um, we're kind of happy to show them that kind of love because, yeah, they're, you know, they can have our back then someday. It's quid pro quo. But the test of true love 
just caring for and honoring people who we can't expect to give us anything in return, the least and the lowest. So we're called to share with those in need, and especially for our fellow believers in this verse, and we're called to practice hospitality. Hospitality means sharing our homes and our lives with others. It means welcoming them into your house and sharing your food and space with them. And what strikes me about both of those commands is how concrete they are. Paul calls us to love in a big-picture way, but then in case we don't appreciate the weight of it, he gives these specific practical examples that love means opening our wallet and our homes to help and serve people, blessing them in a way that is costly to us. So that's the first part of love for Paul, to prioritize others and put their honor ahead of ours and love them in all kinds of ways. When I hear that kind of calling, I kind of feel two things at once. I don't know if this is your experience right now, but on the one hand, as I sat with these verses, I feel challenged in kind of a good way. I'm like, yeah, like, look at how big and, and exciting this call to love is, and I see all these ways that I need to live into that, and, and I feel like, yeah, I want to do that. But at the same time, I feel kind of overwhelmed, right? Like, if that's the picture of, you know, of God's love, that full giving of yourself in all kinds of ways to people, I'm also like, man... I'm really bad at that. And so let me just suggest one way to think about this as we seek to live into it. Like we said, Paul anchors his big-picture commands to love in concrete, practical actions. And I think there's wisdom there, because love is always, at the end of the day, about taking specific actions to help specific people. When Paul talks about, like, familial love in the church, right, and the Philadelphia kind of love, he doesn't mean feel a certain way about your fellow Christians so much as he means treat them in a certain way. Do specific things um, as you seek to show love to them that reflect the way that you would love and honor, say, someone in your own family. You do specific things to show love. I once knew a guy in the church who told me, um, kind of out of the blue, he just informed me that he had decided to stop telling his wife, I love you. And stop, because I am not recommending <laughs> that, okay? But, um, but here's what he said, because initially I was kind of like, what? Um, he said, I, I had this realization the other day he, um, that almost all of the times I say I love you, I'm saying it because I'm failing to actually act out my love for her. That most of the times I say I, say I love you, it's just a substitute for like helping clean up or emptying the dishwasher or something like that. I'm like, I don't really feel like doing this thing, so I just try to use my words to make it okay. And so he said that instead of saying his love you, or instead of saying I love you, whenever he felt the urge to do that, he would say, what is some concrete, specific way I can act out that love for my wife? And then do that instead. Now, I am not recommending that you stop verbally expressing your love, just to be clear. That is a good and important thing. But I do think there was a wisdom there that that guy had, right? That, um, that at the end of the day, what matters is whether we're doing those acts of love to show it to others. And I think it's worth us just then reflecting on what are one or two acts that we can undertake from this text, right? Not how do we fail in the big picture in all these hundreds of ways, but like if this is our calling to love others, what's one or two things that I could do today, this week, to put it into practice in my life? We have that conversation over, you know, lunch today or reflect on it this afternoon. So that's the first part of love for Paul, prioritizing others. 
And then there's a second idea that Paul sets right next to it in this text, and that is seeking good, seeking after what is good. And by good, coming from this text, what I mean is moral goodness, like righteousness and obedience, seeking God's will in the world and in our lives. So if you look at verse 9 again, Paul says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love must be sincere, Paul says. But then before he says anything positively about how we treat others, he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And that really struck me as I thought about this text, because I think we all, somewhere in the back of our heads, celebrate or separate the ideas of love and righteousness or morality. We view them like they're two different pursuits, maybe even pursuits that are in conflict or tension with each other. Right? Doing what is right and doing what is loving, we feel like that pulls us in two different directions. You felt that kind of tension? It happens in our society sometimes with certain parts of our faith. We view, um, like some Christians feel like what we need to do is to be loving, and that means not saying what, you know, the Bible says on certain things. Other Christians feel like, no, we need to stand for truth, and so we need to, you know, go punch people in the face with it. And... Both of those approaches actually fall short of the biblical picture of love. On the one hand, biblical morality exists within the context of love. Biblical morality exists within the context of love. God's love is not meant to be a way you punch people in the face. Our motive, first, is meant to be love when we think about biblical morality. Um, Sometimes people claim to be defending biblical truth, and what they're really defending is their own self-righteousness, and that is wrong. And our method must also be love. We can, even with good intentions, get it wrong because we don't speak the truth in a way that is loving. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you made a list of, like, the commands of the Bible, that list does include the kinds of things we think of as, like, biblical morality that's challenging, but it also includes things like be kind and be gentle and be patient And think the best of others. Those are Christian morals. And if we fail to do those things, right, while we declare other parts of God's truth, we are actually denying biblical morality, even as we say we're defending it. So biblical morality exists within the context of love. But at the same time, biblical love exists within the context of morality, of God's law. Biblical love exists within the context of morality. In scripture, all sin is destructive, and it is damaging, and it is to us and damaging to other people. And so if we fail to tell the truth about what God says, that is not loving people either. That's actually a failure of love in scripture. I have two boys, and I love them, and being pretty typical young males, on the list of things that they really like is fire. And I had the experience last summer while I was getting ready to build the fire pit, right, where, um, where, you know, I went inside to get some stuff and came out, and, you know, one of my sons is sitting on the edge of the pit, like, with the lighter, you know, like, flicking it, trying to figure out how this thing works. And in that moment, if I had said, you know, I really disagree with the idea of kids playing with lighters, and I think it's personally wrong, but to each his own, I need to be loving and let him do it, that would have, <laughs> that's not loving, Right? And that's where, um, I mean, what I did then is I told him to stop playing with it and tried to sit him down and have one of several talks about how dangerous fire is and how you need to to be careful of it. 
And that's how the Bible views sin, that it is dangerous and destructive to us and to others. And so it doesn't make sense to claim that we're being loving if we're failing to try to communicate those truths to people. But again, don't lose the first part of that with the second part, right? That talk that I had with my son, I, had, I sought to do it as gently and kindly and graciously as I could. I didn't just like scream at him. And that needs to also be reflected, that we seek to build people up and not tear them down as we talk about those things. So coming back to the text, that is Paul's idea, that if we're going to love people, we must love God's law. We must seek after what is good and hate what is evil. And then at the same time, he also gives us a few examples of what that goodness means. And those are striking as well. In verse 12, he fleshes this out. He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. These are the kinds of things that Paul seems to be thinking about when he talks about what is good. First, be joyful in hope. Hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus and the hope that we have in God's work in the world. Even in the face of life's challenges and fears, seek to rejoice in that hope. And be patient in affliction, that in the face of the pain and challenges of life, we have two options. We can either get hard and mean, which, um, or, it's, or we can trust in Jesus and persevere. The way we respond to those things matters and shapes whether we're living a life of love And then lastly, he says, be faithful in prayer. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but one of the ways we show love for each other is by praying for each other. It's easy to take that for granted, I think. feel like prayer kind of isn't doing anything. Um, And it's true that we should also show practical actions in our love, but being faithful in praying for each other is a significant part of how we love each other in Scripture. Thinking about all that together, about what that says about love, One of the things that strikes me as I think about our life together is this question, which is, are we encouraging one another in righteousness? Are we encouraging one another in that kind of righteousness? We all struggle with sin. We all struggle to seek after righteousness. And we will always struggle. But one of the reasons that struggle can feel so insurmountable is because we struggle alone. The book of Ecclesiastes has the saying whose images I've always loved. It's, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A scord of three strands is not quickly broken. Which is to say, like, it starts with this picture, like, one person in a fight can just get beaten up pretty easily, right? But if you have two people in a fight, they stand back to back, and suddenly they both cover each other's weaknesses, and they can face all directions at once. And then, shifting the image, um, we make a rope... Um, out of multiple strands, out of like three strands, because it actually makes it stronger, because they distribute the weight between each other, and so they're stronger than they would be on their own. We are meant to be that rope for each other. We're meant to have each other's backs in the struggle for righteousness. One of the best resources that we have is each other. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. He says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's one of the roles that he sees the community of the church as having. So then here's what that looks like in practice. It means two things for how we live our lives. One is that we need to be open about our struggles with other people. We need to share them. 
Many of us, especially I think here in the Midwest, have this toxic idea that it's our job to handle our stuff and everybody else's, right? But that definitely not to share our stuff. But that actually keeps us from experiencing the help and support of the body. And at the same time, as we are being open about our struggles, we also need to be intentional about trying to help others, to share encouraging words, to share ways that God has taught and grown us, to grieve with each other and pray with each other. At its most basic level, I mean, what that that looks like is just saying, like, I have these relationships relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, but somehow I can still fail to ever talk about Jesus with them. Have you noticed that that is possible, you know, somewhere between the weather and what's been going on this week and your kids and, you know, the, the Super Bowl and whatever, right? <laughs> that, that you can somehow never actually spur each other on in your faith. And so what we're being called to do is to just seek to be intentional in those relationships, to build up each other and encourage each other in righteousness. So love involves prioritizing others and seeking God, and then, or seeking good. And then there's one last element. Love involves serving God. It involves serving God. Right in the middle of this section, Paul gives this command in verse 11. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. First, Paul says, don't be lacking in zeal. And that word means like to be diligent or to be earnest or to be like sold out for this thing, sticking to it. And that isn't, um, yeah, and, that, and that's talking about zeal, right, that, that just in our lives, that it should be characterized by that. And then he says that we do that by keeping our spiritual fervor. Fervor there is actually the word that literally means hot, right? It's like keeping spiritually hot, which I like that image. But then that in the end means like how do we do that? He says, serving the Lord. And that's telling us both the outcome of that, that as we keep that spiritual fervor and seek to be zealous, what we are doing is serving God in our actions. But I think it also describes like the motivation for that, which is to say that, um, that he's saying almost keep your spiritual fervor because the one you are serving is the Lord. Like we said at the beginning, Jesus has the two great commandments, right? Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. But those aren't just two separate callings. Instead, there's a sense in which those callings are one and the same. I mean, how do you serve God, right? How do you love God? We just said love involves specific actions. It's not just a feeling that you have in your chest, right? But, I mean, what specific actions do you actually do to serve God? Who sits in heaven and who, in a real sense, cannot be served, right? I can't, like, empty the dishwasher for God and have him say, Oh, man, thank you so much. Like, I was so tired. I just don't know if I would have had the energy to do that. The way we serve God is by serving his world and by loving the people that he's created. That is how we show our love for God. That's why Jesus says, As you have done to the least of these, so you have done to me. God puts us on earth, and he says, I made this world, care for it, and bless it, and love. And if we love him, the way that we show it is going to be acted out by doing that in the world. So loving God means loving our neighbors. And at the same time, how do you serve your neighbor? It isn't necessarily because they're all that great or deserving of love. Right? I mean, it's got to be. If love is only about loving those people who, you know, who who are worth it, then all of these commands about loving the least and the lowliest um, don't apply. Next week, about loving our enemies, don't 
seem to apply, but if love is about loving everyone, regardless of who they are or what they've done, that can't be motivated by the person. The way that we love them is by loving God and recognizing that his calling is for us to do that. That our love for God is actually what motivates us to love and serve our neighbors, too. The more we love God, the more we feel driven to love the world. Let me offer two thoughts on what that means for how we live, um, live out our, our love for the world. One is that as we seek to love the world, we need to do it in a way that is spiritually healthy. Um, love for neighbor should not be pitted against love for God. Let me speak especially to um, a subset of us. Uh, one of the dangers for some of us in how we live our lives is that we hear, to call this, hear this call to love, and then we do it in a way that just burns us out. What causes that? Part is simply that we seek to do too much. We fill our schedules with too many good things and just get too busy. Um, but part of it, I think, on a deeper level, is that we, we also we engage in those things and let those good things crowd out the best things. I don't know if you know the story of Mary and Martha, right, where Mary is, Martha is busy serving and getting the food ready and stuff when Jesus and the disciples come while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha comes and wants Jesus to yell at Mary, but he ends up rebuking Martha. But the point of that story is not that what Martha's doing is bad. Instead, the way Jesus frames it is that, you know, you are doing these good things, but Mary is doing what is most important, what is most needful which is sitting at my feet. What we need more than just to say, I'm going to try to be less busy and manage my time better, is to return to God and be spiritually nourished in a way that actually then gives us the strength to pour ourselves out in love. That if part of, if part of not burning out and being spiritual healthy is recognizing our capacities, the other part is recognizing that by prioritizing our relationship with our Father, those capacities are actually expanding. As we spend time in the rhythms of love with our Father, that actually gives us more strength and ability to love the world. So that's Paul's vision for love. What does it mean for love to be genuine? It means prioritizing others, not just feeling nice about them, but doing things to practically serve them. And it means seeking the good in our lives and encouraging others in it that we might grow up together in righteousness. And it means ultimately serving God seeing our lives as centering on him and being built on his love. Love is the context within which to live the Christian life. And at the beginning, I said that that can be challenging to me sometimes, or I can be frustrated by that, and that's true. But as we close, let me also suggest why I love the reality that love is central. It's good for two reasons. First, it's good because it helps us understand how Christianity is meant to be lived. That's why Paul spends so much time in Romans attacking this idea of religion that's all about this one kind of list of rules. It's because he, he, he has this picture of this loving, spirit-driven life as the picture of Christianity. And what's good about that idea of love is that that is a set of questions that I can ask in any situation. Am I seeking to bless and prioritize others? Am I seeking what is truly good? Am I seeking to serve God? Like, that affects how I, how I work in my workplace, and that affects 
how I relate to my friends, and that affects how I live as a neighbor and a citizen. Every part of my life, right? Those questions transform. So it's good because it describes something that affects our whole lives, and it's good because it describes something that ultimately rests on Jesus. Jesus embodies love in really two different ways. One is that he embodies it in all of the ways that it just is expressed in the complexities of life. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Jesus is not a simple guy to figure out sometimes in the Gospels. One moment he is um, a gentle comforter and friend for sinners, and the other, and next moment it's fire and brimstone and flipping over tables. And the reason for that is that the more we wrestle with Jesus in all of his complexity, the more we recognize the heart of love of good and blessing that he's embodying in each of those situations. So Jesus embodies that love in that he shows it to us. He also embodies that love in that he has shown it for us in the face of our failures to love. We love because he first loved us. That's not only a statement about Jesus being our example, but that is a statement about Jesus being our Savior. We are able to pursue love Because even as we fail in all of those ways to show it, Jesus Christ has shown it to us. He is our ultimate teacher on the cross, suffering to serve us in ways that cover our failures and then draw us to serve and bless the world. And as we experience that, we are drawn more and more into a life of love. Would you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you for that love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that it would spur us onward to love the world, to love others, to seek, to live lives that reflect um, your truth, and to love you, experience your grace, and delight in you. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.